Dr. Mark Bailey was appointed the role of DTS Chancellor in July 2020 after serving 19 years as Dallas Theological Seminary's fifth president. And he continues his role as senior professor in the Bible Exposition Department. In addition to his 35 years at Dallas Seminary, he has pastored various churches in Arizona and Texas. He's a published author and is in demand for Bible conferences and other preaching engagements all over the country and around the world. His overseas ministries have included Venezuela, Argentina, Hungary, and China. He currently serves on the teaching team at Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth. He has been a regular tour leader in Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, Greece, and Rome. And his current board service includes Bible Study Fellowship, Walk Through the Bible Ministries, Word of Life, International Alliance for Christian Education, and Steve Green Ministries. I thought you retired. <laughs> Dr. Bailey and his wife, Barbie, have two married sons and six grandchildren, and as you know, is a incredible part of the history and the heritage of Dallas Theological Seminary. So Dr. Bailey, it's always a privilege to have you. Would you please join me in welcoming our Chancellor, Dr. Mark Bailey. Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you and uh, we are staying busy, and I uh, love the teaching that I get to do, and uh, uh, we've uh, been uh, doing board work by Zoom, and so uh, we're Zoomed out uh, a lot of the time, and Zoomed in uh, other parts of the time, but uh, I Zoom in to uh, watch the chapels here as well, and uh, you need to know that uh, Barbie and I pray for you, uh, the seminary, and its leadership every single night uh, without fail. That's a part of our uh, evening uh, time to read together and uh, pray together. We have devotions separately, and I study separately, but we come together in the evening and uh, before we go to bed, and it's a wonderful time uh, to pray for you all. In Everyday Discipleship for Ordinary People, Stuart Briscoe writes, one of my young colleagues was officiating at a funeral of a war veteran. The dead man's military friends wished to have a part in the service at the funeral, so they requested the pastor to lead them down to the casket, stand with them for a solemn moment of remembrance, and then lead them out through the side door. Thus he proceeded to do, this he proceeded to do, but unfortunately the effect was somewhat marred when he picked the wrong door. The result was that they marched with military precision right into the broom closet, in full view of all the mourners, and then had to beat a hasty retreat covered with confusion. That story, it's a true story, it illustrates a cardinal rule or two. One is, if you're going to lead, you need to be sure you know where you're going. And second, if you're going to follow, make sure you're following someone who knows where he's going and what he's doing. Fortunately, Paul knew where he was going, and he knew who was following. In 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, Paul writes, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. Maybe it's my age, and maybe it's my growing awareness of my own mortality. 
Maybe it's the number of funerals I've officiated for my mentors and colleagues, those I've attended in recent months, but I prefer to think it's my calling and continuous service here at the seminary. In the Bible study that I teach, the Bible study that I attend, at church where I serve and in the leadership to my own family. But I've been especially drawn in the past few years to the pastoral epistles, where Paul, as that uh, uh, older saint, writes to prepare younger leaders for the next generation of ministry. Second Timothy was written to exhort Timothy towards boldness in guarding and presenting the truth in spite of the false teachers and to record his final charge to Timothy, his young son in the faith, to follow him as a good soldier of Jesus Christ in spite of all of its inherent dangers and challenges. The imprisoned apostle alone, lonely as we see in chapter four, facing death, could have been filled with bitterness and self-pity. Instead, he selflessly expresses thanksgiving and gratitude in the early verses of this epistle for the memory of the faith and love of his younger son in the faith. And in this final letter of instruction, as he prepares to pass that baton of ministry leadership. As you attend DTS, or for those of you watching who have already attended seminary or be prepared or are involved in a life of service, allow me to surface in the opening verses of 2 Timothy five prerequisites for leading well. It's these five things as I see them surfacing in the text with which Paul begins the final and most personal of all of his epistles. Prerequisite number one is a firm confidence in a God who calls. A firm confidence in a God who calls. Look at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Three elements here I want you to see, identity, priority, and exclusivity. Identity is Paul as an apostle was selected by God, as you know, converted on the road to Damascus, called to suffer as well as minister, as both an ambassador and an author, to proclaim the gospel and help equip the church. We are not apostles in that technical sense of the term, but as Paul reminds us in one of his other epistles, that we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants to others for the sake of Jesus. If you're going to understand ministry, you need to understand your identity. Who are you? Why has God called you? What does he want you to be? There are a number of terms from herald to shepherd to ambassador to witness in the New Testament. All of those form collectively that identity that we have been called and sent by God. That's our identity, servants of the Most High God. The priority is reflected in the preposition dia, which indicates the effective cause for why he's an apostle, and that's the will of God, the will of God. All of us understand that if it weren't for the will of God, you and I would not be here. If it wasn't for the will of God to put Christ on the cross as a substitute for our sins and bring us into a, a, a relationship with him and therefore commission us to ministry to reach the nations in making disciples, 
we would not understand the priority. Whatever we do in word or do, do all to the, say it with me, glory of God. Paul prays that I might be pleasing in his sight. You dedicate yourself and you're not conformed to the world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can approve, understand, and approve what God's will for you. And that will is good, acceptable, and absolutely perfect. That's priority. The third is the exclusivity because all of this is only found in Christ. But I want to back up to that priority for a moment. In 1 Timothy, Paul used the phrase, by the command of God, as he is emphasizing the authority with which he's exhorting his young son in the faith. Here it's by the will of God. And here I think instead of authority, he's so appreciative of being in the privileged position of being in the providence of God and having been used by God to accomplish his will. But that calling, that will of God, is in lieu of and in light of the promise of life that is in Christ. Life is only found in him. The promise theme is what Paul develops in Galatians 3, where he indicates that that which was promised to Abraham and to his spiritual descendants is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. In fact, it's in this epistle that in Christ occurs seven times. Grace is available in Christ on in verse 9. In 13, faith and love is found in Christ. To 1, strength in the grace that is in Christ. To 10, salvation with all its eternal glory is only found in Christ. In 3.12, living godly in Christ will involve persecution. You can count on it, he says. And in 3.15, the wisdom of the Holy Scriptures that lead to salvation is found exclusively in Christ. What our present world like that of the ancient world doesn't understand, is that true life, as God intended, is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul said it well earlier from prison to the Philippians, for to me to live is simply Christ. Life is defined by Christ to a Christian. In fact, biblically, there are only two alternatives. In Christ, or as 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the evil one. Over the last year or so, I've been reminding my family what Jesus said, marvel not if the world hates you, it hated me first. To understand the nature of the world lies, if I can paraphrase, in the lap of the evil one. We're watching it all over the world not the least of which is in our own country. Life without Christ always leads to serving the will of the enemy. Can I say that again? Life without Christ, if you're not in Christ experiencing all that in Christ gives you, then you are experiencing all that the devil has for you because the world is literally in the evil one. You're either of your father the devil, or you can call your heavenly father, father. Those are the only two families on the face of the earth. So the first prerequisite is a firm confidence in a God who calls. Second is a humble dependence upon a God who supplies, a humble dependence 
upon a God who supplies. Look at verse 2 with me. He writes to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here Paul speaks of Timothy as a beloved son, while in 1 Timothy he called him a genuine son in the faith. Something has happened between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, both in the life of Paul and in the life of Timothy. That fellowship and that friendship in the gospel has grown over time and which for Paul, from his prison cell absent from Timothy, Paul has grown to cherish that relationship. You see, the reason humility is in order here is revealed in the continuum of these three, grace, mercy, and peace. I want you to think of it linearly. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is the unmerited gift of eternal life. It's the undeserved favor of God. Mercy is the undeserved pardon from judgment, the judgment of eternal death. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And when you understand that it was in the cross that the justice of God was satisfied, propitiation was the experience that he satisfied God's justice and therefore was able to extend God's love without a violation but in fulfillment of law so that you and I would not have to pay a penalty that we deserved. Grace is the gift. Mercy is the absence of where we could have been. And the result is peace being justified by faith. We have peace with God. He is our peace. He has granted peace. That reconciliation of a relationship with God vertically and horizontally with all of us. That ministry of reconciliation, peacemaking, Paul says is the very core of our ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter five. Peace is the experience of having been reconciled to God through the finished work of his son. Grace, mercy, and peace. That in a nutshell is the gospel continuum. Paul Tripp in his latest book, Lead, states it well when he writes, there should be no more powerful influence on leadership formation, mission, community, and methodology than the gospel of God's grace. Paul includes mercy here, and it's a bit unusual because it's only found in the pastoral epistles. And I don't want you and I to miss that as we head toward ministry, for good reason. If we ever think we deserve to be in the ministry, we ought to step away from the ministry. Jesus put it bluntly in the end of one of my favorite parables in Luke 17, 10, when he says, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded to you, now that's an imaginary position because none of us have been absolutely 100%. But if we could assume that we've been 100% faithful to everything God has commanded us, we are to say we are unworthy servants. The Greek word is akrioi, which happens to be found in Romans 3 for we've become altogether worthless. Apart from grace and mercy and peace, we would have no reason to be in ministry. So... 
to understand that there is an incredible privilege that you and I need to understand. And that's that uh, our confidence comes from the call of God. But our humble dependence is upon God because he's the one who supplies grace, mercy, and peace. By the way, for those of you that want to dig deeper, uh, Lenski tells us uh, the inclusion of mercy is actually an argument for the authenticity of Pauline authorship in these epistles because liberal critics who question the Pauline authorship don't think he wrote it, as you know. And Linsky says this, all the letters that Paul had written up to this time use only grace and peace. A forger would have copied this greeting, would not even have thought about risking the innovation of grace, mercy, and peace. That little word is powerful for a number of reasons. A firm confidence in a God who calls. A second is a humble dependence upon a God who supplies. A third prerequisite for leading well as he introduces Timothy to all that is going to be laid on him in responsibility, is a sincere gratitude for a God who saves. Verses 3 to 5 is one continuous Greek sentence. It's loaded. His thanksgiving involves this single sentence, but it's compounded by all that's involved in it. His thanksgiving is rooted in a history of faithful service and a present personal freedom that Paul himself experiences. His gratitude is going to include his experience of genuine friendship with Timothy and the evidence of Timothy's sincere faith, literally a faith that's without hypocrisy. It's the same word used in one of my favorite passages in 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a clean heart, a good conscience, and a unhypocritical faith. Paul said, Timothy, you have that. But Paul recalls his own service and whom he serves, he says, with a clear conscience. Back in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received, here it is again, mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. If you want to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll find mercy sprinkled throughout that opening section because without mercy, we wouldn't be in ministry. But it's this clear conscience that I love. See, the Bible teaches and practices its own theology. Your sins I'll remember no more. I'll cast them into the deepest sea. I love the fact that Paul says that he has a clear conscience. Remember his background, what he was formerly, but he now serves with a clean conscience. Why? Because what was never possible in Old Testament times is possible on this side of the cross. Listen to Hebrews, if you want to study that, go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 to 14. Because under the law, it was impossible to have a cleansed conscience. There's a big step up, we'll talk about that again in a moment. There's a big step up from law to grace, from Moses to Christ, from the law written on stone to the law written on our hearts by the Spirit. We are living on this side of the cross, we're most privileged. In fact, in light of biblical revelation, in light of biblical history, in light of church history, you and I are living at the most privileged time in the economy of God to this point in history. Don't ever forget that. This is a great time to be alive and to be in ministry, even in a world of chaos, confusion, and conflict. 
his memory and longing. He had tears because he remembers his absence from Timothy. He has joy, however, because of the potential reunion, which makes Paul's request in chapter 4, get here before winter, even more poignant. His service, his memory, his longing, his confidence. And I want you to see under this confidence, there's a wonderful chain of continuity articulated in these three verses. All of Old Testament history from Abraham onward, four generations of New Testament history that include Timothy. The ancestors, those who were born before, literally, Paul, then Lois and Eunice, and then Timothy, which sets Timothy up for those who will come in line through his ministry. Listen to the verse, I thank my God, whom I serve as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And I'm reminded of your sincere, that unhypocritical faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. And remember, he's going to go on to say, the things you've heard and seen in me commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Four generations in that verse. This great continuity of history, his service, his memory, his longing, his confidence. And I don't want you to miss the importance of the biblical theology that's referenced here. While Jesus rightly challenged the religious leaders with perverting and missing the proper intent of the Old Testament law, as George Knight writes, Paul affirms here a continuity with the true faith of his Jewish ancestors. That is, that he has not left the Old Testament and turned to worship and serve another god, but in recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah, he has continued to serve the God of Abraham. That same thought is what Paul defended himself with in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Listen to it. But this I confess to thee, that after the way which they call a sect, so serve I the God of our fathers, believing all things which are according to the law and which are written in the prophets, having hope, which is directed toward God, that there shall be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. See, Paul recognized that when he came to faith in the Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament, he stood in that great train of history that starts, if I could say it even before, but is formalized with the Abrahamic covenant, the promise, as Galatians says, that was made, and the law did not abrogate the promise. The law brought along, came alongside to deal with sin, to prepare us for, to imprison us in, and to uh, anticipate a fulfillment and point toward Christ. There's great continuity. Don't make the mistake of disconnecting them. 2 Corinthians 3 and Galatians 3 are two good passages to see that stair-step ascent from Old Testament to New Testament. <clears throat> but, excuse me, but both steps are essential. The promise of the Abrahamic covenant was not annulled by the law when it's added. But the law was added to bring people to Christ. And Christ is the fulfillment, not only of the promise, but also of the law. There's continuity from Abraham to Timothy with Paul, Lois, and Eunice in between. And guess what? You and I are the living end of that great grace train. Don't ever forget your place in the program of God 
and how God has prepared you for this moment in your ministry as you prepare for him. Firm confidence in a God who calls, a humble dependence upon a God who supplies, a sincere gratitude for a God who saves throughout human history. Number four is a bold exhortation that comes from God through the apostle to Timothy from a God who gifts, a bold exhortation from a God who gifts. For this reason, because of your unhypocritical faith, the unhypocritical faith that our forefathers had, the unhypocritical faith that your grandmother had and your mother had and that Paul has, for this reason, Paul says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This term is a unique term here. It's only found in this context. Ana zopereo. It comes from three words. Ana meaning again, a preposition meaning again. Zoe is life, as God intended life to be. Not by us, but zoe. The life that only God can give. And then pure, which means fire. It's in the present infinitive. Present tense in the infinitive mood that speaks of the need for progressive, consistent, and constant attention. It's the tending of a fire that you want to keep burning. Why was this necessary to review a little bit? In 1 Timothy, the apostle had written in 4.14, don't grow careless about the gift that is within you. There are a lot of leaders who have gotten careless with their spiritual gifts. And let me tell you that uh, spiritual giftedness is no guarantee of spirituality. Without the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit often get misused and are carelessly flaunted at times, failed at other times. Timothy was a bit handicapped by frequent physical ailments. 1 Timothy 5.23, he was in a sense a young man, as 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 2 tell us. The Ephesian elders who opposed him were determined and intimidating, as found throughout these uh, two epistles. He was naturally timid, we understand. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16, 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see to it that he is with you without fear. If, if, if you are a little hesitant about whether or not God can use you, you're in, a good, you're in a good space. If you come through that space with these prerequisites. And believers were being persecuted and executed by the state. After all, that was the experience and the soon expectation of the Apostle Paul. So, Timothy, here's the life of Christ. God wants you to live. I'm in prison. I'm about to die, but go for it, brother. You can understand the potential intimidation. Rekindling the gift would involve commitment, dependence, diligent study, as we see in this passage, in this book, as well as in 1 Timothy. Prayer, obedience, and faith. See, God is sovereign in giving the gifts by his spirit, but you and I are responsible in developing, exercising, and the continual stoking of the passion flame for those gifts. And that's why you're here. Or that's why you continue to get equipped. To keep the embers going from coals to flame again and again and again. Present tense, over and over and over. It's the stewardship of the gifts God has given to you. I take it that the reference to the laying on his hands is the time when Timothy's gifts were officially recognized by the elders and by Paul, as you see. And I'll never forget when I was ordained to the ministry 
and then inaugurated later, years later, into the presidency at Dallas Seminary. Those two ceremonies were votes of confidence by leaders that God had uh, placed me in the ministry and had a place for me in the ministry. Was it my associate's degree in radiological technology? Was it my bachelor's of arts in Bible? It wasn't my master's of divinity. It wasn't my master's of theology. It wasn't my PhD, and it wasn't my DD that gave me that. All of those faded in the background, as hard as they were to get. But when godly elders said, Mark, we think God wants to use you, and when the board and the former president laid their hands on me, as we will soon with Mark, that meant more to me than anything. Because it was a recognition by godly people that God had gifted me in some way to do what he wanted me to do. Paul says, don't forget we did that to you. You stir up the gift and don't forget we knew you had it. We knew you had it. A bold exhortation for a God who gives. Now I want you to see this. Number five is a strong assurance by a God who enables. A strong assurance by a God who enables. But listen, the way I stated these weren't accidental. A prerequisite for leading well is a, a, a firm confidence. Not in ourselves, but in God. A humble dependence upon God. A sincere gratitude to God. Understanding the bold exhortation from God. And then a strong assurance that only God can give. But on the other side, here's the work of God. He calls, he supplies, he saves, he gifts, and finally, he enables, he enables. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear. That's not the spirit we received. But of love, excuse me, power, love, and self-control. The spirit that God did not give is uh, found only here, this word, uh, delia. It's not the common word of phobos or phobeo for fear. Bauer, Danker, Art, and Genrich define this as a lack of mental and moral strength. God did not give you a lack of mental and moral strength. On the contrary, he gave you so much more. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, fear is our failure to realize what God has given us and is giving us in giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our failure is to realize what God has given us and is giving us in giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first century, like the present century, is a hostile environment in which to be a Christian, let alone to lead out in ministry. Paul reminds Timothy of the divine resources available, power, love, self-control. Power is the means by which we serve. Dunamis is characteristic throughout the New Testament of the work of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, etc. Regeneration comes from the Spirit. Strength in the inner man comes from the Spirit. Filling for effective witness and proclamation comes from the Spirit. The fruit is from the Spirit. The victory is over sin is from the Spirit. The gifts of, the, of, of, of ministry are given by the Spirit. And it takes the Spirit of God to understand the Word of God. It's 
the resource we need for everything. And God has put the spirit of his son within our heart whereby we can say, Abba, Father. And come boldly to a throne that, as Dr. Toussaint used to say in his prayers, was transformed from a throne of wrath to a throne of grace, where we can find grace and mercy and help just at the right time. Power. Love is the motivation. If power is the means by which we serve, love is the motivation that ought to capture our hearts. That ultimate end of the law and the prophets, treating others as you'd like to be treated, comes out of a, a wholehearted love for God and an unsegmented love for our neighbor. Love is the motivation for our ministry. And the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts out by the Spirit. Thirdly, discipline is the mindset. This is a unique term. It's only found here. Paul loves these new vocabulary words as, he, as he's about to sign off. It's a word that's translated self-discipline. comes from a word for salvation and a word for thinking. Thinking Christianly. Thinking with a saved mentality. He uses cognate forms of this for discretion and demeanor God expects both of men and women in the pastoral epistles who would lead godly lives in the church and before a watching world. The, works, the words suggest a level of self-management that is not the natural endowment of humanity, but it's the unique enablement of the Spirit of God. John Piper put it this way, spiritual leadership is knowing where God wants people to be and taking the initiative to get them there by God's means in reliance upon God's power. It's a great definition of biblical leadership. Because Paul in this passage will go on to say this, therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, Timothy, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, see mercy and grace for all of that, but according to his purpose, there is the will of God, and the grace which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. It's sort of like he puts that as a wrap-up to everything he said in these opening seven verses. Don't be ashamed. I close with this. I love how Avery T. Willis Jr. penned it. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few. My guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My colors 
will be clear. Will ours? Would you pray with me? Father, may the colors we sport be the swag of the spirit and not of this world. May you have no doubt about where we stand so that we might be effective ambassadors, servants, bond servants of yours. Prepare us to minister better with these concepts from this little personal powerful epistle. I pray that for myself and I pray that for my younger sisters and brothers in the faith. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.